right. I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So Kara, today we're going to talk to Bill Gloss, who is a veteran, a poet, a short story writer, a journalist, um, about his collection, All the Ruined Men. So I wanted to open up by asking you about the war stories that you've either taught or seen or read that have stuck with you. So the the first one that 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 of course came to mind, especially looking at Bill's collection, was Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Because there's like there are so many similar similarities between those two collections in terms of just following the same company, both during and in the aftermath of war. They're both linked collections. They're both kind of revisiting these same characters and 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 the ways that that uh, that they connected with each other during the war, but also how it affected them much later in their lives. And obviously, you know, Tim O'Brien's is about the Vietnam War, and and um, and and Bill's collection is looking um, is looking at Iraq. Um, but there were just so many resonances between the two of them, and the the, the things they carried is um, I, I've taught stories from that collection. The other one I, I thought about was um, one I think we've actually talked about before. Susie is Benjamin Percy's Refresh, Refresh. Yes, um, which is not exactly a war story because it's about the sons of of, of people who have gone off to war. But it's but it's so much about the long reach of war and how it affects these families as well. Yes, such a good story. I I think for me, I have like a modern example and then a not so modern example, but on opposite battlefronts of World War One. So I, you know, one thing that really sticks with me is the um, pretty recent film, nineteen seventeen. That sort of like long shot movie following um, the British soldiers as they're going sort of behind enemy lines. And but what I think is really interesting about that, which is so different than this, is even though you're very much in the trenches, I mean, you watch, you follow, literally follow the soldiers walking into the trenches and you see how close it is and you can feel that the panic and you you kind of feel everything, but it's a very exterior experience. You don't get in that soldier's head in the way that you do with, you know, my other example is All Quiet on the Western Front, which feels a lot closer to this collection because of the disillusionment of, of Paul, the main character, German soldier, enlisted with the promise of fighting for the glorious motherland and then is in the trench warfare and becomes disillusioned and becomes hardened and, and sees everybody fall and, you know, all these kinds of things and thinking about sort of the impact that these stories have had. I mean, all quiet on the Western front <laughs> helped change the perception of the great war, you know, but still like being very much in his head and feeling fear and feeling grief and all of these kinds of things. So very different experiences. And, and that's what I really liked about Bill's collection is, you know, we'll talk about how it's more centered sort of in the after rather than in the middle of the war, like these two examples that I just gave. But you're very much in these men's heads and you you see sort of what's what they're feeling. And especially since they're back in the States for a lot of it, you might recognize some some people in these soldiers, which I think is is very, very fascinating. You know, the the, the other thing that I thought of that that hadn't occurred to me before is that I'm, I'm I'm right now teaching a novel called Glaciers by um Alexis Smith. And one of the main characters is um is it is an Iraq veteran. And the the, the book takes place 
in in 2007 where you know th- th- this character's come home from the war but it's still it's still something that's so ongoing and uh, and and is still like so much a presence in the book and um and and I think that was another one of the things about about Bill's book that w- that's so effective is just like thinking about how you deal with the aftermath of war especially for for a lot of these characters where the war is just it's it's an ongoing thing even after they've come home Absolutely. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, to hearing what, what Bill has to say about this book and, um, and about his experience of writing it. Bill Gloss is a combat veteran and a former paratrooper. He's written hundreds of articles for magazines. In 2011, he was named the Daily Press Poet Laureate. Other honors include the F. Scott Fitzgerald's Short Story Award and the Dateline Award for Excellence in Journalism. His newest short story collection is All the Ruined Men. Welcome, Bill. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we were hoping you'd open things up by reading your poem, What a Bomb Wants, from the collection Postscript to War, which won the 2019 National Award for Veterans Poetry. Uh, Certainly. So uh, this is What the Bomb Wants. The bomb never dreams of vacations in Maui, of climbing ancient volcanoes to peer into pools of lava, Why beauty exists in one eruption and not another could exasperate the bomb, but doesn't. The bomb is busy counting seconds till its enunciation to an unsuspecting crowd. Spend time in the company of bombs. You can't help thinking like one yourself. Bag and tag, ears and toes, amorphous chunks and splintered bones, Guess which tab fits which slot. Stagger, stumble, lurch like a newborn calf uncertain how to walk. As you shove shocked and curious onlookers back from the perimeter, your mind ticks toward detonation. Taking in the robes, the hands, the dark-eyed faces, wondering which is thankful for your presence. Which wants you dead. Not all bombs have wires and batteries, triggers connected to cell phone ringers. Some attach to all you swallow and hope to forget, biding time in the roiling stew of your stomach. Reason is secondary to a bomb. Resting on a fulcrum, it waits for gravity to shift for the scale to totter and drop its weight, for the chance to do the only thing it knows. It's such a powerful piece. Thank you. So in your bio, we mentioned that you're a combat veteran and a former paratrooper. Could you tell us a little bit about your background in those positions and and how that informed your writing in All the Ruined Men? Yeah, certainly. So uh, (laughs) to, to start off with, my... You know, I, I actually started out in Air Force ROTC. I wanted to be a pilot like my father, but uh, you have to have perfect eyesights to be a pilot. So I figured if I couldn't fly the planes, I would jump out of them instead. So I switched over to Army and uh, became a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne. My war was, gosh, over 20 years ago now. You know, I fought in the in the Gulf War. Uh, we were the line in the sand, the, the first soldiers sent over when Hussein had uh, 
invaded Kuwait uh, to prevent him from continuing on into Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, at the time, you know, we, we all thought that his tanks were going to continue and roll over us, but uh, he paused and then we built up and then we invaded uh, Iraq. And so my war was fought in that desert uh, where we would, you know, run across uh, a sand doomed landscape and uh, fight in bunkers and very different from the current war. Uh, you know, I, had, I, I wrote po poetry for catharsis about my own war, but as I got back and the wars continued over the years and the same soldiers kept getting sent back time and again, uh, I wondered, you know, what it would be like to go out and fight in that kind of atmosphere. And, you know, in their war, they're fighting door to door, uh, town to town, and their, their Humvee convoys are racing along uh, roads littered with trash where every little piece could be hiding an IED. So the constant fear and the constant threats and then continually going back time and again, you know, I, I wanted to imagine what that was like. And so that's what led me into writing this book. You know, my, my own experiences did inform how the troopers acted and how they felt and everything they carried back with them after they got home. But the experience while they were there, that was something I had to research because, as I said, their, their war was just so radically different from mine. That's one of the things that, that struck me about this is, you know, you, you go into reading a collection about war and you expect a lot of it to be on the battlefield and yet here, so there, of course, there there were stories there, um, particularly the first one in the early cocksure days. You know, we we see the battlefields, but a lot of the collection focuses on that aftermath that you're talking about, the repercussions. Um, even the title is the aftermath, and so you know, I think you're starting to sort of answer it with you know doing the research about this war and everything. But can you talk about why did it feel important to you to sort of focus on the aftermath and the coming home and sort of those repercussions? I, you know, I have read, you, you started out by saying, you know, how many military books focus uh, on the battles themselves. And those are the same sorts of books that I had read. When you read a, a book of fiction involving war, it takes place as the war is going on and the terrible decisions that the soldiers have to make and things like that. And there are plenty of memoirs written uh, uh, after war, where soldiers look back on their experiences, uh, frequently those are written long after, you know, when they become old men and forget what it was like to be a kid and certain you would never die. You know, so I wanted to write a piece of fiction that captured the essence of everything roiling about within them when they came home all the baggage they carried back and everything they had to worry and continue to fight over, you know, in a land where they now felt like strangers. They get deployed so often over there and spend so much time 
in Iraq and Afghanistan, when they come home, this is what feels like a foreign experience to them. Uh, you know, that's what I wanted to capture uh, with this book. That original story in the cocksure days, I think all of us can remember when that statue of Saddam got pulled down and uh, so many of the Iraqis went up and they were slapping his face with sandals. And it just had this feeling like, okay, we did it. It's done. And then it kept going for another 10 years, spilling into Afghanistan. And just, and as I said, the same troops kept getting sent over time and again. And, you know, so that first story was introducing us to the characters over there and that sense of, hey, we, we've got this. And then, uh, you know, the turmoil uh, in all the other chapters is afterwards when they come home and go back to different parts of the country and uh, try to reintegrate with society. I I thought it was really kind of spot on, like thinking about this as roiling, everything that's roiling inside of them. And then that's what it's really felt felt like to us as readers. That's why I wanted, you know, to open this with you reading that particular poem, because I feel like in such a brief period, we get inside um, of their head. And, you know, there was there was one quote in the story Dead Man's Hand that I think really, really stood out to me about sort of the anger and the hatred that like has been taught to these men and that they can't kind of let go of. And it's, it's Pearson who's talking about to be an effective cog in the military machine, you had to embrace your hatred. And so, you know, could you talk a little bit about your, about the role of anger for these characters who are trying to, you know, deal with being back home? Uh, certainly. So when, when soldiers go through boot camp, you are trained to focus uh, your hate. You go through these mock scenarios with cutouts of what would be enemy and you know you shoot your way through objectives but then as you as you get there and you're in real battles uh, they aren't paper targets and they're shooting back at you and your comrades are dying or severely wounded around you and this happens over and over and so the focused hate that you had to help you get through a combat situation starts to grow and fester and manifest in ways, you know, like, like cancer, you know, it becomes a malignancy that spreads to other areas. And then when you get home, it's, it's hard to turn that off. Uh, you know, for myself, when I came back, I, I know I was, I would get angry at inopportune moments. And sometimes one thing that would make me laugh another time might, make me explode and it's hard to get back on a level keel but you know that's that's what's demanded of these soldiers i think you see that so much in in a character like um like mueller in the book um who's just struggling so much with this and and it and it and it so frequently comes out as as anger in these moments where where you're really hoping that he'd be able to to, to do something different and it's just it, it's too much yeah Mueller he, he's his own worst enemy <laughs> and uh, he, he often makes his his situation uh, worse but uh, he does he does try particularly there at the end where he's really trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter he just can't 
find find a way to really do it and and I think you know the way he does by you know trying to teach her you know what he knows about fighting to help her protect him herself that's as as close as he can come to being a father to her you know the the collection contains a, a lot of moments of veterans dealing with this anger um dealing with the the horror of war but it also has a lot of moments of connection between them and lightness um one of the things i was thinking about uh, specifically was her brother's apartment which is such a devastating story but it also ends with this moment of beauty and 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 literal light as well can you talk about kind of balancing those elements between beauty and pain in the, in the a collection like this and um and why you felt like including both was important well i i think um a, a lot of people when they look from the outside at a large organization be it the military or be it a police force or be it teachers you know, if you're from the outside and you're looking in, you look at one or two key people and you think they are all like that. But, you know, every every person may be trained to perform their job in the same way, but everyone is still an individual. And so, you know, when, when they got home and they were dealing with their anguish, when any individual deals with an anguish, that anguish is not everything they are. They, you know, they have connections with other people. They have moments of joy. There's, you know, a, a complete life. And that's what I wanted to show for these characters, um, especially, you know, to get away from the one-dimensional aspect of it. You know, I, I thought... I wanted each of these characters to experience as their main problem a a different issue. So, you know, some of them have a loss of faith. Some of them have a physical uh, uh, wounding. Some of them have emotional scarring. Some of them have brain injury. You know, so it, there's a variety of different things that they are primarily dealing with. But I, I wanted to show them uh, on the full scope. Uh, they're... There are a million ways to fracture and a million more to heal. That's so beautiful. And it's also, you know, one, one of the things that really feels like it connects all of these men are their memories and the way that that's still impacting, like the haunting of the memories. And I'm just in thinking about some of the, the, the fluid nature with which you sort of shift from the present to the past, you shift into the things when there are triggers and how sort of seamless that is to be in their brain and to just not be in the present, moving from laying the foundation of a pool to the dogs on deplo deployment. I'm thinking of dog is not a palindrome, which... I would, I don't want to say more about the story because I think it needs to be read as a whole, you know, <laughs> I don't want to ruin, uh, I don't want to ruin things about it, but can you talk a little bit about that process, especially given the approach that you wanted to take, you know, we're not living in the present being at war, we're living in the present now, but with the constant flashback and triggers and things sort of bringing these characters back to their experiences. When I started writing this collection, I actually started writing stories that took place during wartime and I scrapped most of most of those I kept some incidents from them but that gave me the full history of their past 
when they you know come forward into the present. And then uh, oftentimes a a close personal connection, you know, whether it be romantic or familial, was something that could help to focus the veteran and, you know, put off any sort of anger issue or other problem he might be having. But then by the same aspect, while things might be going along smoothly for them, such as Daniel Faust, you know, in What Won't Stay Buried, you know, when he's working at the factory and he's got his home life and everything seems to be going fine with him, all of a sudden there's an accident on the floor and, you know, someone gets mangled and there's blood and he hops in and takes care of it. But then the blood and just the situation brings the war back to him, what he's tried to keep bottled up and not talk about. I, I, you know, I, I would intentionally look for, you know, things that might serve as triggers. And I would think of things that served as, as triggers uh, for me. That incident I just mentioned, I, I worked in a bag factory in Chicago and someone got their arm caught in the press and I took her to the hospital. And you know, so a, a lot of the incidents are built upon, you know, actual occurrences, and then I would take them into fictional territory. You're talking a little bit about how there there are occurrences of like actual incidents in the book, and I imagine with any any collection or, or any piece of work that you're writing about war or, or a very intense experience like that, that it's difficult to kind of protect and preserve your own mental health while while you are doing this research and doing this writing, how did you kind of handle that while, while you were working on the collection? I, I would say that the first drafts of many of the scenes uh, that I wrote, if it, if it wasn't a light scene, uh, was difficult for me. And then as I would go back in and edit it, smooth it, you know, sand off the burrs, uh, it would be easier, but those first drafts uh, were difficult. I felt very close to these characters and, you know, just imagining the pain and the difficulties, not only that they were experiencing, but that they were causing to those around them that they love. It's not only difficult for a soldier coming home, it's difficult for everyone in their family and everyone they know. I I, I think that really comes through when you see how they're handling the aftermath of everything. You know, there's, you, you, you really recognize the humanity in all of those characters in, in those moments. And it, it, it makes for a really beautiful collection. Well, thank you. That's very nice. We've kind of shifted a little bit into the the craft part of this. And so I'm we're always interested and in, we're always asking short story writers about putting together the collection. And, you know, oftentimes I felt why is this even called stories? I feel like I'm just reading a novel, you know, a, a novel yeah, with some yeah. time jumps and some perspective shifts, but it felt so cohesive. So can you talk a little bit about the decision to, to do this as a story collection? Maybe it was never, it just happened that way or how you envisioned it and sort of went from there. Yeah, so I, I did begin writing individual stories that were not connected. They were using some of the same characters. And then I saw some connections and, and uh, built upon them. And then I brought the characters home. And I saw that I could tell a 
complete story. And I created something I call a continuity map where I mapped out each of the stories and it, and it serves as a, as a matrix with the, the characters and their locales on the tops of the columns. And then as you descend down the columns, the, the time increases and then the stories would link together. So that way I could, I could follow what was going on juggling all these pieces with all these characters spread across the country, but still keeping them connected and keeping them coming in and out of each other's lives. So each story can be read as its own complete story with its own resolution. But when you do read it in its entirety, it does have that narrative arc that carries through and comes to what I hope is a satisfying ending for the entire collection. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I don't. You know, some some people find calling uh, a collection, you know, short stories when it's linked stories, they want to call it a novel and stories, or just fiction, or even call it a novel. You know, but uh, I, I, I've always loved the short story, and I, I'm, I'm thrilled with it being labeled as linked stories. I want to shift a little bit and ask about um, some other parts of your writing life, um, because you're, you're a journalist as well. Can you talk a little about how you got into that and how it's affected other parts of your writing? Yeah. So I mentioned that I had worked in a factory. Uh, after I got out of the military, I went to a factory in Chicago, and then I became the plant manager at a factory in Massachusetts. And while I was working there, a really long weeks, and I, I wasn't enjoying myself too much, but I would come home and at night I would write stories. And that's when I would come alive. And that was what, you know, my, my whole day and my whole week and month and everything was building towards was, was the writing I did after work. And then I started thinking, you know, this is America. If you find something you're passionate about, you should go after it. So I walked away from a successful manufacturing career and just jumped into the jumped into the pool uh, without any experience. Uh, learned a lot of hard lessons along the way, but then I s started getting some regular assignments with magazines. Became listed on the front of the magazine, and you know it it, it just grew. And then the poetry came after that. So I have been writing in all three genres and I, and I find that they all support one another. You know, the magazine writing taught me to be focused and to always ask, you know, what purpose a paragraph is performing. You know, how does this fit in the overall thrust of the, of the message I'm presenting? And then poetry taught me to focus on not just each individual word, but each collection of words, the lyricism of them and how they sounded to my ear. And then when I was writing fiction, you know, that would, I, that would teach me to focus on extending plots and themes and, and making that all work out. Uh, regarding the lyricism, 
with the poetry, what I, I started doing, my, my main writing time is early in the morning. I get up in the pre-dark, pre-dawn hours and go out for walks with troublesome pieces of writing. And I will go over them again and again in my head as I'm going on my walk. And I find when I'm out there, out there walking that it, it, my brain comes alive with all these problem solving <laughs> capabilities. And, you know, usually there, there are a few problems I go out on a walk with that I cannot solve by the time I come back. You know, so I do that mental editing. And then when I get back, I hop on the computer and write, write the stuff down. But you're not just even writing poetry. You're also filming it, right? You've got your YouTube channel, Virginia Poetry Online, um, as sort of a, a close for, for folks. Can you tell us a little bit about the channel and then, you know, why is it important to film these readings? Because it's super cool. Oh, right. Well, thank you very much. I, I, yeah, Virginia Poetry Online started accidentally. When I first started going to some poetry readings, I had just launched my first YouTube channel, just playing around with stupid videos like everybody else does. And uh, so I started filming some poetry readings. And then I saw, you know, some of the people who were there at the reading were appreciative that it was posted on YouTube. And so then I filmed some more and it just grew from there. And then I realized, you know, this was a service I can provide for all of Virginia. And so since I started, which was probably, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I, I've been all over the state and I've got over 1,500, no, over 1,400 videos uh, on the site. And I've got them organized in playlists. And the reason for that is if you are going to Hampton Roads and you've never been there before and you thought, oh, I'd like to see if there's some poetry event I can attend, you can check out the playlist for a particular spot and say, that one is my style. I'd like to go and check that out. Or, no, I'm glad I saw that. That's not for me. And yeah, so, and it's been great fun for me. I just, I, I don't get out to the western part of the state as much as I'd like. I, I'm going there for another open mic on uh, December 16th to the Floyd County Library. Uh, that, that'll be a fun one. I'll be filming that, posting that. But it's, it's just, you know, a service so that we can, you know, poets from around the state or outside the state can see what's going on. And then the other surprising thing that's come from this too is that it has served as a memorial. You know, since I have been filming over such a, a lengthy period, a number of people who I've filmed have since passed away. And, you know, their families have been very appreciative that those videos are up there and that they can, you know, see their loved ones, you know, out there when they were healthy and happy and, you know, living their poetry. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with us today, Bill. Um, it's been great hearing more about your, your collection. Um, I, I, I hope some of our, our, our listeners will check out uh, the Virginia Poetry Online YouTube channel because there really is just so, so, such a wealth of, of excellent Virginia poetry on there. And, and yeah, thank you again for talking with us today. Uh, it's, it's been a joy. And uh, I, I love the podcast that you've been doing. I've been listening to them all. And it's a wonderful thing that you're doing too.
Thank you. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.